1: Today's sermon is pre-recorded. Shipwrecked. Oh Lord, don't let me shipwreck my faith. Don't let me shipwreck my life. Don't let this congregation, any man or woman, any boy or girl, shipwreck in this congregation. But Lord God of heaven, bring us through to victory over every temptation. And we will give you the honor and the glory, and the praise. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. My brother Roger, myself, and a handful of friends were on a 44-foot Cho Lee. We were leaving Annapolis for a pleasure cruise, a blue water cruise. Out of Annapolis, we traveled north, up to the canal, over to the Delaware River, down to the mouth, and out into the Atlantic Ocean. Our destination was Atlantic City. My brother Roger and I took the graveyard shift, and the graveyard shift brought us to that time as we were just leaving the Delaware River. It was pitch dark. Roger was up in the bow of the boat with a bright flashlight, watching for the markers as we made our way down that river, trying to avoid the sandbars, staying within the bounds. And as we finally made our way out into that ocean, there was a great sigh of relief on both of our parts. There was a lot of tension making certain that we kept that boat and those precious passengers safe. As we went out into the Atlantic Ocean, there was a gentle breeze out of the east, We headed north. We were following carefully the charts, but at this point, we laid the charts down. We knew where we were, and we knew where we were going. The sails were adjusted. It was just the kind of evening that is absolutely to be dreamed of. The stars were brilliant overhead. The breeze was just perfect, and it was balmy. Roger and I sat back and had sodas. And we said, isn't this the life? We didn't mind the graveyard shift because we knew we'd see the sun come up. But as we were making headway up the coast, my eye caught over here on the far starboard side a fixed light. And I said to my brother, Roger, "Is do you see that? Is that a ship? Anytime you see a ship with that kind of light on it, you make certain you don't have a collision. And on the water, it's not as easy as it is on the land. You can't tell if the ship is coming toward you or going away from you or going to cross your path. And so we began to watch closely that light out there. It didn't seem to move. We had no concern. We had our sodas. We kicked back. We talked and we laughed said, Roger, there's something wrong with that light out there on the starboard side. It shouldn't be there. Nobody puts an anchor in out that deep. We better check the charts again. And then Roger said, don't you remember the last thing the captain said before he went to bed was after we got into the Atlantic Ocean and we headed north on our compass, that we had to watch for a a breaker wall, grabbed the binoculars, looked ahead, and the the waters were breaking against that solid stone breaker wall. And we were headed dead on. Had we continued in the course we were on, we would have shipwrecked. We quickly came about and went deeper out into the Atlantic to avoid, and went around that, warning beacon of light that we'd been watching. Now, it would not have mattered had we been concerned and worried and frightened at sailing this boat. As long as we stayed on that course, we were going to hit that wall, and we would destroy the boat and possibly lose our lives. It didn't matter if we were angry at each other and having a fight. As long as we stayed on that course, we were going to hit the wall and we were going to destroy life. It didn't matter if we sat back and were casual and relaxed. That wall had no emotion. That wall had no emotion. If we hit that wall, the laws of physics say we're going to crash. There's going to be a grinding and breaking As we slam into it, it doesn't matter what I believe or what you believe about that wall that's ahead. The fact is, the wall's there, and if I hit the wall, I'm finished. And the boat sinks with a possible loss of life. Now, Roger and I could have debated for all the remaining time left about what we should do about that wall debating about it would not have saved us from crashing. The only thing that would save us from crashing into that wall was to change our course. If we were unwilling to change our course, we were going to crash. No one was going to yell at us and be angry. No one was going to discipline us. The fact was, we were going to pay for judgment's sake the laws of physics, as we slam into that wall. We could be alone out there in that water, injured and drowning. What I'm trying to tell you is that this is not an emotional issue. There are emotions. Believe me, the adrenaline began to race. We calculated the space we had. What kind of action do we have to take? We swung that boat quickly to the starboard side. We readjusted the sails. We asked the question, do we need to kick the diesel motor in? Frankly, we said no because it'd wake everybody up down below and they'd find out what a fool we'd been. (laughs) Even in our changing of direction, we were clever. But it didn't matter. All that mattered was that the direction had to be changed. There wasn't anybody up there shouting at me saying, Ray, change your direction, change your direction. Okay, if you make such a mess like that, if you're going to embarrass me like that, if you're going to yell at me like that, I'll change my direction. But as soon as you're gone, I'm going to go back to do what I was doing. No, nobody was doing that to me. The fact was, pure, simple, unadulterated, if I didn't change my direction, I was going to crash. I changed my direction. I've been thinking about this in terms of Scripture. Are there patterns that we can begin to identify in the life of Peter where he refused to change directions and hit the wall? Can we begin to identify what the steps were that caused him to not change direction and hit the wall? And if Peter hit the wall, Can we learn from that in a way that we don't follow suit? So let's talk about the Apostle Peter for just a minute. He was a young man, probably not more than 18, 19, 20 years of age when he met Jesus. He was a fisherman. He was a part of a family business. They were probably not rich, but as middle class as you could get in that day. They had their own home, they had their own boats, they had their own nets. They were business people, they were merchants. Now, Peter has been attracted to John the Baptist. He has a heart that is intense, he has emotions that are sharp. He follows John the Baptist, but he also follows his fishing. A man has to make a living. So while some of the others, less responsible, trail off after John the Baptist, Peter stays and takes care of the fishing. Somebody has to do the work. So the disciples, the new two disciples, come to find Peter and say, we have found the Messiah. Now I'm sure that galled Peter because if there was a Messiah, he'd want to be the one to find him. He was that kind of man. But he comes, skeptical, questioning, uncertain, and he begins to listen to Jesus. He begins to follow Jesus. He begins to say, hey, there's something here I don't understand. Now, to get that kind of response from Peter, Jesus had to give him a whole lot of fish in a very unexpected way. He'd been working all night. He hadn't earned a thing, which hurt his pride tremendously. Jesus knows how to touch your life in just the way necessary to begin to tell you to change directions. Peter's been working all night. He hasn't caught a thing. Jesus calls from the shore. It's now daylight. It's morning. You don't fish in the Sea of Galilee during the day because you can't catch anything with a net then. The fish see it and flee. Peter, throw your net out on the other side. Hey, we've worked all night and haven't caught a thing, but because you say so, okay, I'll do it. An attitude. Yes, An attitude. So he throws it overboard. You know the story. It's so full of fish, he can't pull them all in. Hey, wait a minute. Fish are equal to money. So many Dollars jumped into his net. He couldn't pull them all in. So he's pulling the money into his boat. And suddenly it dawns on him he didn't work for that money. It wasn't his fishing that got that money. And he bows down before Jesus and he says, Oh God, depart from me. I'm a sinner. Now Jesus had Peter's attention. What's it take for you to give your attention to Jesus? Jesus. Does he have to touch your money? Does he have to touch your reputation? Does he have to touch your comfort zone? What's he have to do to get your attention? To tell you to change direction. Now he's ministered with Jesus. He has seen the evidence that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, the God, the King of the universe. He knows this is true. But Jesus asks him, who do you say I am? And Peter answers in Mark, the eighth chapter, you are the Christ. Verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke. He spoke plainly to them about this. Now read that next verse. Peter took him aside. You can see it now. Jesus, come here a minute. I want to have a word with you. Jesus, you can't talk like this. If you talk like this, people are not going to follow you. And we're here to build a kingdom. What he didn't say was, I expect to be the vice president. (laughs) But he's now set himself up as the advisor to God. The God of the universe needs a little wisdom from the fisherman. The one who can speak to Peter and say, Throw your net over to the other side and fish jump in it. This this Jesus needs Peter's advice now. Jesus speaks to him very bluntly and says, Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Those words are harsh. Those words cut right across. I mean, those kinds of words would make somebody turn and walk away and say, Preacher, if you're going to talk like that to me, I'm out of here. Don't talk to me that way. Now, Preacher, I expect you to be at the door shaking my hand, patting me on the back and telling me what a wonderful person I am, and to go have a wonderful week. Now, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus spoke the truth. He said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. He then calls the whole crowd together and he begins to teach the people and Peter especially. Verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Peter is saying, Jesus, if you want to be a success, you're going to have to walk this way. And Jesus says, I'm not here to be a success. I'm here to be a sacrifice. Get behind me, Satan. Peter doesn't catch it. Peter still thinks that Jesus ought to do it his way. This continues through all of the rest of the ministry the disciples at every possible occasion are fighting with each other over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Now please understand, these disciples have left their fishing businesses behind. They are full-time following Jesus. They are not earning the bread that they're eating. They're many nights sleeping out in the open. They are paying a price to follow Jesus. Their comfort has been thoroughly disrupted. They don't have their life anymore. They don't have their television. They don't have their soft beds. They don't have their family's love. They don't have anything. All they have is following after Jesus. And he's disciplining them and speaking to them in ways that hurt their pride. But they know he's God. And they've learned to love him. And they know they want to follow him. And they know they're willing to do anything to fight for his cause, because they've seen his gentleness, they've seen his kindness, they've seen his honesty. They love him. Now, there are several examples that I could share with you. One is the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter is taken with James and John up on the Mountain of Transfiguration, where Moses and Elijah comes down and speaks with Jesus. They see Jesus transformed in this being of immense light and glory. What have they been doing just before they see Jesus transformed? Sleeping. Sleeping. They awaken from their sleep, and what does Peter want to do? Does he want to ask a question? He wants to jump into action. Can I build three shelters here? One for you, one for Moses? What's Moses want a shelter for on earth? <laughs> He's got a mansion in heaven. What's Elijah want a a wooden shelter for on this mountaintop when he has a chariot waiting to take him back home? Utterly foolish. This is the only recorded time in Scripture when God the Father has to speak and tell a human being to shut up and listen to his son. And it was Peter. The only time in Scripture... So what could Peter have caught that could have saved him the embarrassment of God the Father having to speak and telling him to be quiet? Can you imagine the embarrassment of God having to speak out of the heavens in front of your friends, your peers? I mean, what if you were going down a certain course of action and suddenly everybody around you, they hear God speaking just to you? saying, hey, bud, you're messing up. Now get it right. I don't want God to do that to me. I can't tell you how many times I've thanked the Lord for hiding my sin. Thank you, Lord, for not exposing me to public ridicule for my sin. Because the Lord knows I've deserved it. It's only his grace that has covered me. And if you need a covering this week for sin, And God's grace covered you. But when necessary, he will expose you. And he exposed Peter. But now let's look at a model that we can identify clearly. The scripture lays it out in black and white. There it is. You can see who Peter is. You can see what God does to save him. And it tells us what God wants us to be doing. Go with me to Mark, the 14th chapter. In Mark 14, Jesus is telling the disciples he's going to die. He's going to be crucified. And then in verse 28, he says, But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter declared, Even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insists emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Now, keep your finger right there and go with me to Luke, the 22nd chapter. Luke, the 22nd chapter, in verse 24, they're arguing about who's going to have the power. Who's going to be the greatest? And in the context of that whole discussion about who's going to be the greatest, the Lord breaks into that discussion in verse 31 and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Now, the interesting thing is that you is the plural. Satan has asked to sift all of the disciples. But Jesus is not concerned about all of the disciples. He's concerned about Peter. Because Peter is the impulsive one. Peter is the one who jumps quickly and thinks afterward. His mouth is always going before his feet begin to move. His mind is dead and his mouth is popping. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Now we go from that into the story of the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. I want you to notice verse 40. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like the drops of blood falling to the ground. What was Jesus doing? Jesus, frankly, was tempted to return to heaven and let us have our own just dues. Jesus did not want to die. He did not want to go to the cross. He wanted to go back home. He wanted to go back to the Father. He was tempted to walk away from us and let us rest under the devil and then the judgment and the fire and brimstone. He was tempted to let us die. And as that temptation came to him, he struggled violently against that temptation. And he struggled violently in his prayer closet. He knew the only place temptation could be destroyed was in his prayer closet. He knew that if the victory were not won in the prayer closet, it would not be won on the field of battle. He knew that if the temptation had not been defeated in the prayer closet, He could not have defeated it when he went to the cross. He would have said no. He would have called 12 legion of angels. He would have destroyed the earth and he'd have gone back to heaven. And he would have started looking for a new bride. I praise God he didn't do that. I praise God he didn't cast us off. But I want you to hear what he's saying to to Peter. Listen to this. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Falling into temptation always occurs when there has not been adequate time in the prayer closet to win the victory Over the temptation. You will never change course. Unless you have changed course. In your prayer closet. If you don't pray. You'll be defeated when you meet the devil. That pornography. Those drugs. That bitterness. That anger. That cynicism. That well of anger that wells up and and flows out at those workmates, whatever it is, that lying, that cheating, all of those are dealt with, not in the heat of battle. They're dealt with in the prayer closet. And if the victory is not won in the prayer closet, you'll be defeated on the field of battle. You can't win in the field of battle unless you've won in the prayer closet. Sometimes when I talk with couples about marriage issues, I say to them, you cannot wait until you're in a fight to get peace. You have to get peace before the fight starts. If you have peace before the fight starts, and you talk about how you're going to handle the disagreement before it comes, when it comes, you can handle it. Because you both have made an agreement about how you're going to deal with it. Now, it was interesting As Jan and I walked through this valley, this wilderness, not having the money to pay for for even the most basic needs, every time we would sit down together with all of the bills spread out before us, contention would come between us. Contention would come between us. She'd want to pay one bill and I'd want to pay another. And I'd say, you don't understand. If we don't pay this one, we're dead. Well, but if we don't pay this one, we're going to lose our credit rating. And besides, we promised them we would pay. Now, we've got to pay this one first because it's due the day before. Pretty soon we'd have hurt feelings between us. Now, I know none of you do this. But we had hurt feelings between us. And if we waited until it was time to deal with the money, we were sure we were going to have hurt feelings. So you know what we did? We started talking about it before the bills were due. And we decided together before the bills were due how we were going to handle the bills. And we didn't have any contention then because the bills weren't due. She wasn't surprising me with any bills I didn't know about. That's something I hate. I hate surprises financially. I mean, I want to think through You know, like a cat with nine lives. You know, it doesn't matter if I don't have very much, but I'll manage well the little bit I've got. And then I can feel proud. Do you know the foolishness of what I'm talking about? In other words, those issues had to be talked about before we got in the heat of battle, or the heat of battle, we forget about the bills, and it's just a battle about who's going to be the greatest in this marriage. The bills are just a pretext for the fight about who's going to have the control. And obviously, I'm the head of the house. So you should be submitting to me because I'm the head of the house. And of course, she would say to me, and I thought Jesus was the head of the house. Hey, <laughs> And I'm being honest. We did not get peace in our finances until we didn't have any finances. They belong to Jesus. And we laid them out. I'll never forget the day we did this. We laid them out, every bill. We laid them, they weren't due. We laid them out all before the Lord. We repented of every one that we had created. And we put every bill under the blood of Jesus. And we said, we're never going to fight about these bills again. And we talked through and we prayed through until we were very clear what was going to happen, and I'll tell you what, it's now been several years since we've had one harsh word or critical word between us about finances because there's nothing to fight about anymore. Jesus is the greatest. He's the king. He's the Lord. All the bills are his bills. We didn't go create our bills. I trust her not to create our bills, and she trusts me not to create our bills. We talk and pray together about every penny that's spent. We don't walk in the flesh in our finances anymore. We walk in the Spirit of God. That victory came out of the prayer closet. And we had to stay in that prayer closet till the victory was won. Now what I want you to see is that Peter has been warned by Jesus that Satan wants to sift him. I want to tell you the bad news. Satan wants to sift you. First, because you're a human being. He hates us. He hates human beings who were created in the image of God, because through the human being, the Son of God came, and he loved us with such passion that he provided a way of escape for us through the wickedness of the devil. He hates us. He wants to take every one of us to hell with him. He hates us. So he's at war with us. He's gone out like a a lion, seeking whom he may devour. So he comes to this person, and and this person is right here, just in in the throes of saying, shall I go get those drugs or not? It feels so right. Now you understand, Television, newspapers, refrigerators. There are lots of different kinds of drugs. I'm in the throe of saying, shall I go get my drug of choice? If it hasn't been settled in the prayer closet, I will give way because I can't conquer that sin in my flesh. I can't do it. It'll destroy me. It'll suck me up and and I'll feel so bad afterwards. Have you ever just firmly said in your heart, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to say it again. I'm not going to do it again. And very quietly under your breath, you know you're saying until the next time. I'm not going to do that again. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I won't do it again. Till the next time. The battle cannot be fought with the object of desire, with the drug. Can't be fought. You'll lose every time. The battle has to be fought in the prayer closet. That's why I tell couples, if you, if you start to get into a fight, there's only one thing to do. One of you have the courage to stop the fight by beginning to pray about your sin, not your spouse's sin or what happens if you're in a, in a business situation and somebody begins to just rail at you? Somebody begins to curse you. Well, the natural human response is to rise up and say, you can't treat me this way. I'm a Christian. I won't put up with that. What would happen instead if we followed the example of Scripture And Moses, and he falls to his knees right there in the business situation. And he begins to say, oh God, I pray for this woman. I pray for this man. You hear they're cursing you. Lord, convert them right here. Bring them to yourself. What's going to happen? Every time Moses was faced with a crisis, he met it by falling on his face physically and praying. People are going to say, you've lost your marbles. Maybe. And maybe they'll be converted. Maybe they'll be converted. Now, please understand with me, Peter has been warned by Jesus that Satan is out to get him. He does not go to Jesus and say, Jesus, please help me understand how to deal with this. I'm going to be sifted by Satan, Would you please help me know how to be victorious over this? He didn't do that. He said, I'm the man, I can handle it. Bring it on, Satan. Take your best shot. Satan barely touches him with a glove. And he's down on the ground, out for the count. No power, no strength. You can't conquer Satan in the flesh. It has to be done by the blood of Jesus. And it has to be done in the prayer closet. The change of direction does not come out of humanism. It comes out of the blood. Watch what happened. Jesus is at the Mount of Olives. He's saying to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Verse 40. Verse 41, he withdraws about a stone's throw away. He kneels down and he prayed, Father, if you're willing to take this cup. In other words, Jesus is doing now, he is modeling now exactly what he has told his disciples to do. Pray that you don't enter into temptation. Being in anguish, he prays more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Have you fought so hard against that temptation that you have bled? Jesus did. Everything in his heart wanted to go back to heaven and desert his bride. And he said, I will not desert her. I will redeem her. He rose from his prayer. He went back to his disciples and they were asleep. Notice what it says. Exhausted from sorrows. sorrows." Now, what is the source of the sorrow? The source of the sorrow is they aren't getting their way. And they feel bad. Jesus is going to leave us. What are we going to do? My life is miserable. I've done all this and this is all I can get out of it. I should have never left the fishing fleet. I should have stayed and made money. And now here I am. Poor me. Oh, poor me. Victim, victim, victim. They're exhausted from feeling sorry for themselves. Any of you been exhausted this week from feeling sorry for yourselves? Using up all of your energy, complaining about how tough your life is, how bad it is. Jesus is saying, go to your prayer closet. Get the victory in your prayer closet. David has told this story so many times and and it just lifts my heart to hear it every time. Where in his heroin, he finally got down on his face before God, and he said, "Stop me! Do whatever you have to do, but stop me! Stop me!" And the ulcers came, and the sickness came, and he couldn't stand up because his legs were locked together with ulcers. He was stopped, dead in the water until God could do a work in his heart and start to turn that hard, stony heart into a heart of flesh. It's not by chance that he was locked on his knees, because that's where the victory comes. And until you're willing to go to your knees and cry out to the Lord God of heaven until you bleed, you're not going to have the victory. You're going to blow with the wind this way and that way, feeling sorry for yourself one day, indulging your appetites the next, going for the drug of choice. No victory, no peace, no joy, no life, no change of direction. He asked them, get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Number two, pray so you don't fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, what's Peter do? He moves into action with his sword, he tries to kill the servant of the high priest. And Jesus rebukes him again and says, put your sword away. Do you not know I could bring 12 legions of angels? In other words, here's Peter again standing directly in the way of the Lord God of the universe, impeding his path. Still hasn't learned. You've been getting in God's way. God's been trying to do something, and you just keep getting in the way of it. You've got to have your way. Exhausting yourself, feeling sorry for yourself, thinking how bad life is, but refusing to go to the prayer closet and gain the victory. Talking to everybody else, but not to Jesus. It's amazing the number of times somebody will come to me and start to pour out a tale of woe, and I say, Have you been to Jesus about this? Well, no. Well, don't talk to me then. Go to Jesus. Pastor, you're being rough. (laughs) Hey, I'm not Jesus. I can't pull you through. I can't give you victory over sin. I didn't die for you. Jesus died for you. Go to Jesus. Get the victory. He'll give you the victory. He'll give you the victory. You'll change your direction. The joy of the Lord will start to well up in your heart because you've got the victory. So here's Peter swinging his sword and what's his next step he goes in with a high priest with the guards and he sits down with them and a little girl says to him hey i saw you with jesus no you didn't see me with jesus i don't know the man three times he denied any knowledge of who jesus was denied that he had followed jesus Totally repudiated his relationship with Jesus. Now, if this had been an isolated event, we could just say, you know, Peter was just overcome with the moment. But that's not true. Peter set in motion that wall that he hit way back here when he absolutely refused to stop feeling sorry for himself and to pray. He refused to be excruciatingly honest about his condition. Instead, he blamed everybody else for his condition. Instead of getting on his knees before the Lord God of heaven and saying, I'm guilty, he said, everybody else, it's your problem. There's a parable that I heard once. man's name was Jaime. The jailers came for him one day and hauled him off to jail. They put him in the slammer. He was in isolation. He got his food through a little slot on the floor. They'd shove it through the tray. And every day when the jailer came, he'd shout and scream at him and say, I'm innocent. I didn't do it. Let me out of here. I want to see an attorney. And the jailer would walk away every day and he would chuckle to himself and he'd say to, to Jaime, yeah, you're all innocent, aren't you? This went on day after day. He had one little window in his cell, way up high. And one day as he was laying in his cell feeling sorry for himself, he looked up and he saw a blue sky. And suddenly, he found himself looking in on his miserable life from the outside. And he said, while I'm here in all of this mess, life is going by me. And I am missing out on everything. And he began to weep. And he said, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Shortly after that, he looked at the door. Something wrong with it. Didn't look quite right. Got up from his mat. He went over and he pushed a little on the door and it swung wide open. Jaime walked out of prison a free man. We create these prisons for ourselves of misery. And finally the day comes by the power of the blood of Jesus when we can look into that miserable little cell that we've contained ourselves in and look in from the outside and finally admit, I'm guilty. I'm shipwrecked. I've made a mess of my life. I'm not going to make it out of this alive. I'm guilty. That's what the blood of Jesus is for because it it opens the prison door and sets the captive free. Some of you have been in your jail cell a long time. Worn yourself out, feeling sorry for yourself. Miserable. No peace, no joy. Today, are you willing to say I'm guilty? And by the blood of Jesus, walk free. Are you willing to go to the prayer closet and fight this thing out with God and stop fighting it out with people? To go into the prayer closet and get on your face before Almighty God and say, Lord God. If you don't change me, I'm not going to be changed. If you don't deliver me, I'm not going to be delivered. If you don't change me, I'm not going to be changed. I'm going to hit the wall. I'm shipwrecked. I'm going to die. Until you go to the prayer closet and do that kind of work, you're not going to be free. Jesus was without sin and yet the temptation was so powerful upon him that he had to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had to shed blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was sinless. That's the same work we have to do. It means giving up our pride. It means giving up our arrogance. It means giving up being right. It means seeking Jesus with all of our heart and asking him to do whatever he has to do to stop us in our tracks and to turn us from the way of death to the way of life. Now, very quickly, I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. When Jesus turned and looked at Peter, it was obvious that Jesus knew Peter, even if Peter didn't know Jesus. Jesus' temptation had been to deny that he knew us. He won the victory. He went to the cross. And on that Sunday morning, he was resurrected. And then there was a breakfast meeting with Peter. And Jesus asked him a simple question. And this is right at the root of everything we're dealing with. Do you love these fish more than me, Peter? Do you love your little prison more than me, Peter? Do you love your misery more than me, Peter? Do you love your lifestyle more than me, Peter? And Peter answers, Lord, you know I love you. Again he was asked, do you love me more than these, Peter? Three times Jesus asked him that question. And then Jesus speaks the most profound. Awesome invitation. He says, Follow me. Don't follow your father's fishing fleet. Don't follow your career. Don't follow your dreams. Don't follow some carrot, some quick to get rich scheme. Don't follow that. He said, follow me. Follow the person, Jesus Christ. Are you free today or are you bound? Are you caught in a prison of misery or prison of sin? Are you willing to say today, I'm guilty? And are you willing to go to your prayer closet and do the work?
0: Oh. Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you walking daily by the Savior's side? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you rest each moment in the are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? When the bridegroom cometh, will your robes be white, pure and white in the blood of the Lamb? Will your soul be ready for the mansion bright? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? There is power, 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 wonder-working power in the blood. The the there is power, our, power, our sin-destroying power. power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Are you wise Are you in the blood, in the, blood, blood, in the soul-cleansing blood, blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of Lamb? Are you washed in the blood of Lamb?
1: Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. Write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, P.O. Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195, or visit us online at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you.
0: Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to Before the presence of His glory With great joy With great joy